to A Problem Squared, the only podcast to ask the question, hey buddy, what's your problem? And mean it in a lovely way. I'm your host, Beck Hill, and I'm joined by the wonderful Matt Parker. Hello. Yes. No, that that was a more aggressive tone than we normally strike in this podcast. <laughs> what? Hey, buddy, what's your problem? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with calling everyone buddy, but, that, but you pulled it back. But yeah, you got to say, hey, buddy, what's your problem? Hey, buddy, what's your problem? That, that could go either way, though. <laughs> yeah, you got to just get that tone right. Hey, buddy, what's your problem? Buddy, there you go, that's it. What's your problem? Got the tone. <laughs> it's very important to get the tone. And what else is important is to get the agenda for the show. In this month's episode, we are going to get some closure on the hashtag cheese cover-up. We've got the results of our listener survey. We're going to do some quick fire problem solving to try and uh, answer as many as possible. And I found out what that word was. I forgot. It was thanks. That's what you forgot, Matt. <laughs> thanks, oh, Beck, really? oh, for sorry. being thanks. awesome. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's been a very slick start to the podcast. So I'd like to thank you for that so far, buddy. <laughs> Matt, it's the end of a year and our first full year of doing a Problem Squared. It's very exciting. I know. What's been happening since we last spoke? Well, so we're recording this right before Christmas. It, it, people will be listening to this probably in, mm. in the new year. So I've actually spent most of the time since we last recorded trying to program my Christmas tree, which has kind of overwhelmed my life for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> You're the only person I know who would say programming your Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not the only person I know who has programmed their Christmas tree this year. So a friend of mine <laughs> got, you can get LEDs, which mm. can turn any RGB color. So any of the over 16 million different colors individually. And a friend of yeah. mine put a chain of them around their Christmas tree. So you can play very, very low resolution uh, Donkey Kong. What? So you've got barrels rolling down but the barrels are just <gasps> leds lighting up sequentially one at a time yeah and then mario is a light yeah and each layer like there's one row of leds for the ground one for like barrels and mario and then one for mario jumping wow. and then that's it and so you and i had no idea this is uh, matthew scroggs um who does Chalk Dust Magazine and a bunch of other great stuff. I've worked with them before, and I had no idea they mm -hmm. were doing their own Christmas tree project. Whereas I bought 500 LEDs and uh, put them all over my Christmas tree. <laughs> but And then what normally bugs me about these programmable LEDs <laughs> is you can only really do effects in the order they are on, on the wire. So you can have like, you know, color chases and things go up and down the wire. Right. So if you wrap it around. It's a mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I spent a very long time uh, writing some code that would turn them on one at a time and then use the camera in my laptop to detect where they are. And then I do this from four <gasps> different directions. So then I got to rotate the tree by 90 degrees, repeat, rotate, scan. Right. And so then I get the 3D coordinates what? of every light on my tree. And so I can now have, no. yeah, I can have like color, like visual effects going up and down the tree and across and from the inside to the outside. Oh, it's, I'm very, very excited. I love how this will get done by Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, it's, it's all working pretty much. I'm still messing around with it a bit. It's not quite as honed as I'd like it to be. But um, yeah, that was my, and I've been meaning to do this for years and I don't know how you find motivating yourself to get projects done. I bought 50 test LEDs. Like I looked it up over two years ago when I had this idea and every Christmas mm. I've just been too busy. But what bumped me over the line this time is I was on a, a, a video call with a friend of mine and they had a bunch of LEDs out on the dining room table. And I was like, Oh, what are you working on? And they described this, um, uh, they were building like a, a actually a very similar, like a 1d video game on these LEDs. And then I was like, oh, I bought these ages ago and I've never got them done. But because I told them, this is my friend Eugenie, um, who does uh, visual effects work. Eugenie was like, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll send you a, the, a guide because I went through and worked out how to make them work. And so she very kindly put together this Google document with all the instructions. And I'm always hesitant to tell people about projects because I feel like you get a bit of the reward of doing it just by talking about doing it, which makes... Mm 
me then go like, well, that's that project done. Oh, yeah. That's a genuine um, cognitive behavioral therapy thing. Oh, really? Is that if you, um, often when you talk about an idea that you've had, you get um, the same endorphin or dopamine rush that you would get from completing that task. And so that's why you yeah. should be really careful with uh, how much you talk about going to do it because you'll get the rush and then you no longer need to do it because you're not drawn to it by that chemical uh, need. Yeah, exactly that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to dial back my chemical motivation to program LEDs. Mm. However, on this occasion, I now felt not obliged, but I felt um, like there was someone else who I was not beholden to. But I, I wanted. I didn't want Eugenie to have gone to all this work to put together the document, and then I still don't do anything with it. And a bit of yeah. me is like, also, normally I'm doing loads of shows at Christmas time, so I can definitely excuse myself and go, oh, I'm just so busy with these shows. That's not true this year, obviously. And I'm like, well, you know what? Yeah. Now I've got a friend with a vested interest in this and I've got more time at home than normal. So that so th it was interesting because normally I wouldn't tell people, but this time telling someone because I was then responsible to have to go back to them and say what I did, I actually got it done. So I thought it was interesting. My normal strategy, I went against it and it worked. Yeah. This is interesting because uh, we're talking the day before your big 40th, your big four zero. That is correct, yes. Which is very exciting. And uh, I think it's safe to say that a, a lot of people, when they hit that age, go through, you know, some sort of crises. Some sort of fractional life crisis, yeah. Yeah, yeah I love the fact that you got there a lot sooner. <laughs> Thank you. By days. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I think that it's great. And I like, I think it's projects like that and things that keep you busy like that, which will uh, keep you going forward and happy with life as opposed to needing to buy a sports car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's reminding myself to do projects, to make time to do these things, because it's the kind of thing that kept getting bumped back. And I'm like, I'm just going to kick myself if I never do this. And so finally getting it done was very exciting. Mm. Um, I will, I'm, I, might, I might put a video out on YouTube about it if I get organized. Yeah, yeah. The video will be out before this podcast. Surely that's never backfired. So keep an eye out for that. <laughs> you have to do that because it doesn't make sense if it comes out after Christmas. So you have to do the video. Before Christmas. Yeah, that's kind of a deadline. Yeah, no, good point, good point. Yeah. And I will put some of the code on GitHub if people want to have a look at it and write. I can't guarantee I'll get it to work, but if people want to write code for my tree, because in the end, Eugenie wrote some guest code that now runs on my tree to do visual effects. So if anyone wants to write guest code for my tree, I will um, have a link to GitHub. And some details below if people want to check that out. So that's some. Um... Oh, man. Never have I wanted to code more so I could put a big old butt on your tree. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah. I'm sure uh, someone will collaborate with you. So many you rude words. To, uh, I know. Yeah. Actually, that's the one thing it doesn't do yet. I want it to be able to display text. That's my on my next on my to-do list. Mm, next year. But anyway, how have you been? Have you got a tree up? You've been keeping busy? I, I do. I haven't programmed it. I'm afraid oh. it's just a tree. Uh, I tell you why I've been busy. I um, recorded. Um, I went up to Manchester last Sunday before the lockdowns, and uh, I got to do eight out of ten cats does comedy countdown. Finally, yay! I was so envious. I bet. Yeah, there was so much maths, Matt. Obs. I did dictionary corner. Oh, really? So oh. I didn't have to do any maths. And I, I just did lots of, uh, Susie Dent did all the words and I uh, drew pictures. But that'll come out around um, Valentine's Day, I think, around mid-February. It's really fun. Okay, okay. So we'll, um, we'll remind people when it gets closer. In episode 012, we had a problem posed to us by listener Adam Light via Instagram which is at a problem squared for anyone on Instagram. And they wanted to know where the 41% of packaging from a new packaging shape of cheese from Tesco went. And uh, we were sort of looking into it. We started the hashtag cheese cover up, trying to get to the bottom of where this missing 
percentage of packaging was gone. And Matt, I believe you've gotten to the source of that problem so that you can provide a hot, delicious, melty answer. Oh, yes. And we didn't so much get to the bottom of this as go straight to the top. I have spoken. We mentioned last time that I tracked down the name of the head of packaging at Tesco. I was able to get in touch with them and we had a phone call to discuss cheese packaging. Wow. So this is the top, top packaging person. Yeah. Right? You know, you can't go any higher up the packaging chain. We had so many theories. Like, we had theories about this. Our listeners had theories. You know, we're still, we still get messages from listeners who have other ideas yep. of what, what it could be. But you've spoken to the person who knows for sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I put every single one of our <laughs> theories to them. And they have provided <laughs> comprehensive answers. I got to thank James Bull for taking the time to. I mean, they're head of packaging. It's a busy time. I don't know if people noticed. It's a currently a busy time for retail, particularly grocery shopping. <laughs> and they took time out of their pre Christmas rush to talk to me about the numbers of cheese packaging. So, first of all, we were correct. When we looked at the packaging, which claimed to use 41% less plastic, and we analyzed the dimensions of the block of cheese, there is no way to resize that cheese to reduce its surface area by 41%. So we were absolutely correct. That's not what they did. That was, however, one aspect of what they did. There were three things they did to reduce the total amount of plastic, and that was one of them. The second thing was, by changing the dimensions of the block of cheese, they reduced the biggest span. So if you look at all the different bits of the packaging, the biggest span of plastic is now smaller. So it's now a smaller maximum span of plastic. And it's the biggest bit of plastic, which is the most likely to stretch or tear. And so if you can reduce the biggest span, your package is now more tear resistant. And it means you can use thinner plastic. And this was one of our theories kicking around. It was the thickness of the plastic. But the reason they could make it thinner is because by changing the dimensions, even though the volume was the same, there was now smaller bits of plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were able to reduce that. And this is a big deal because for packaging, they work out the total carbon impact of the actual product as well as the packaging it's in. Mm. And the packaging is less than 10% of the total carbon footprint of anything being sold in a Tesco. So if you have anything that spoils or breaks in transit, that's a huge carbon waste because now you can't sell that product. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So actually, it's worth having thicker packaging with like a a margin of safety because even if you uh, use more packaging but slightly reduce the amount of packaging which fails, that's a big net carbon gain. Yeah. And so Mm. they play it careful on the thickness. And so by changing the dimension, they could just dial it back slightly, Mm. still safe, but it's not going to tear. Amazing. And then finally, yes, they got rid of the resealable part of the packaging. So when we found the press release that the manufacturer put out, we noticed that in the pictures, the resealable section was gone. Mm -hmm. And we got very upset because the theory was people are now going to have to use their own packaging at home. Because I love that little resealable bit. Yeah. And now I've got to wrap it in, you know, um, cling film or glad wrap or et cetera. Or put it, I put it in a Ziploc bag. Yeah. We actually did have a few uh, suggestions from listeners as well who'd sent in photos of the way that they seal up their cheese without using new packaging or waste or anything which was largely using either rubber bands or clips which are both very good suggestions clip is a good yeah. one and actually so i went no I, this was my you know i felt like a journalist this was my hard question i'm like hey so head of packaging we're worried that you didn't think about this and they go well actually they don't change their packaging unless they do a big Uh, like kind of bit of market research on how people are using the packaging. So for every change, they will talk to between five and 10,000 shoppers to find out how they're using the packaging. And uh, the bulk of them are drawn randomly from like club card users. They they send out, would you like to be involved in this survey? And they get at least 5,000 responses. And then some people who sign up because they just love being parts of doing studies. Mm. I don't know who these people are. They sound like our kind of people. But anyway, they get thousands of people. And what they found is a lot of people weren't using the resealable aspect of the packaging. 
So even though it had a resealable bit, people were still wrapping it in cling film or putting it in a reusable container or doing all these other things. So it was redundant. Yeah. And so, yes, we were right. For some people, they were using that resealable feature to use less plastic at home. Yeah, Mm. correctly. I think we can all agree on that. But other people weren't doing that. Mm. And so that's a double waste. And then they factored in that they want to encourage the use of reusable containers and things like those clips and putting it in like a Tupperware or off-brand resealable container thing. And so when they factored in this nudge towards behavioral reuse change, as well as people who weren't using it anyway, they decided it was a net gain. Okay. And so they got rid of it. I'll take it. There you go. Wow. It turns out that they put the effort in. They uh, took a serious look at it and worked out it would be a gain to, to remove it. So there you go. That's the big result. So I found the whole chat very interesting. And occasionally they would apologize because they're like, oh, well, this is not actually the maths, but... And they would go into all the things you got to factor in to these decisions mm. and how they used to favor plastic because it's very low carbon to make. It's low mass in terms of transport. It's very good as a barrier so that your products don't spoil. It's very flexible. And so actually it used to be the very obvious choice for packaging. And personally, big fan of plastic. But then they're now factoring in that plastic uses virgin non-renewable raw materials because you've got to dig up oil to make plastic. I'm kind of okay with that because then you're not burning the oil. I'd rather it goes into packaging. But, you know, I get their point. And also now they're factoring in the end of life. And and this bugs me because if we just were able to dispose of the plastic perfectly it'll be an amazing product but they got to mm. factor in that it's not disposed of correctly mm. and so now that's part of their consideration it, it means that plastic is going down their list but now because i've always been a big fan of plastic bags a, a controversial thing but i yeah i think unless you use the reusable bags enough they never are better than plastic bags but you've got this end of life issue and i admit you can't deal with that. And so they're now wrestling with, you know, when you get like the the super thin plastic bags that you put like your um, fruit and veg and stuff in. Yeah. They're like, oh, in theory, if we switch this to paper bags, that would be net better for the environment because of the end of use. Mm. However, they're worse on carbon. But also there's the public perception because people look at the paper bags and go, well, these are terrible. We, we shouldn't be using paper bags. That's, that's not good, you know, deforestation and all that so they've got to balance all the different impacts of the packaging as well as how consumers will use it like should they bring in reusable nets that you put the produce in but now they've got to work out the average uses required for that to be a net gain yeah pun very much intended and so they're constantly having to slide and adjust all these variables and i will say no i think that's great and i love the fact they were discussing it with me because Part of my point is, it's never just the one statistic. You've got to think through all the knock-on effects and other things that you're changing. And so we had a great chat. Then we started talking about shelf sizes. That was good chat. How many things you can fit on a pallet compared to how big a shelf is. Oh, wow. That sounds like Oxford philosophical level stuff. Like how many angels can you fit on a pinhead? Can dance on the end of a fridge shelf. Yeah, all that that stuff. (laughs) And how different shops have different ranges in different shelf sizes. So if you were to go in and measure all the shelves in like uh, like a little, they would be a much smaller range of possible sizes because they were custom built to be standardized versus Tesco, who have a lot of old shops. And there's a huge variety in their shelf sizes, but that makes packaging a lot more difficult to do. Huh. And so, ah, good, good shelf variance chat. We had a we we had a good time. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I, you know, have fun with you, best friend, whatever. I'm not jealous. I don't care. Oh, not as good as this time, buddy. Don't worry. <laughs> so now we know sort of roughly where that 41% went. We also had a question because we, we suspected that Pilgrim's Choice um, mentioned that they'd also had a reduction in their packaging by 40%. And in the last episode, 013, we were trying to work out what happened to that extra 1% and whether someone was rounding down and someone was rounding up. Did you Were you able to ask about that? Yes, I asked. I said, look, I know you're a busy, important person, yeah. but 
our listeners need to know the exact percentage and how you got yes. it. And they said they would go away and find out and get me the exact number. Because to put it on the packaging, they had to go through their legal department to make sure they had rigorously worked out this number. They had to do a Dexter. Oh, yeah. Our um, pudding squared kid. Yeah, yeah. Dexter. Yeah. Who worked it out properly. They did a Dexter. So their legal department... Very similar. Imagine they've got a very similar whiteboard to Dexter. <laughs> they did all the working out in fine detail. And they didn't do it like by factoring in the dimensions and the thickness and the Ziploc. What they actually did was they just, they weighed the original packaging and they weighed the new packaging and they worked out the percentage difference in mass. And so the old packaging was uh, 5.8 grams. The new packaging is 3.4 grams. They have rounded to the nearest whole gram but we're going to uh, move on. Uh. And then they worked out that there's a reduction of 41.4% in the packaging. And I actually accused them of rounding up because Pilgrim yeah. put 40% yeah. and Tesco put 41%. And I was like, oh, come on, they're rounding up. It turns out, no, 41.4% and they were rounding down. They were huh. unable to verify Pilgrim's packaging because they mm. don't do the same... Uh, exhaustive fact-checking for claims made by other manufacturers. So mm -hmm. they were unable to comment on Pilgrim, but they gave me their exact working out. Uh, so 41.4% rounded down to 41%. And there you are. Wow. I, I, we've blown the resealable lid right off this. Ah. So I feel I feel like that's, we, we've seen it through. Yeah. It took three episodes, but we now know comprehensively. Just in before the end of the year. <laughs> just in time. We can tick this one off. Where that number came from, why that number came from, yeah, and where that number is going. Ding! Ding-a-ling-a-ling. -a Thank you. That's the ding I'm here for. I'm doing that on behalf of Adam Light. I can't imagine Adam not giving that a ding. I feel like I'm just watching that bit in Indiana Jones. You've just d taken a dive under a like a falling I've rock. I've just slid under the closing rock, yep. And I managed to grab my calculator that fell out. <laughs> yeah, get out. Oh. Ah, congratulations. I'm Thank very you. impressed. Well done. So the cheese cover-up is now uncovered. Or it's all wrapped. I don't know. Either of those. So we asked you lovely listeners to fill out a survey for us, which we posed uh, firstly in um, episode 012 and then again in 013. And Matt, you have collated all of the answers to share with us so that we know a little bit more about who you are listening to us now, how we can make the podcast better and more enjoyable. And uh, just, yeah, generally do an end of year review. Yeah. And I thought, because we had just over 200 responses, I was thinking, oh, that's pretty good. You know, we're, we're putting the effort in to get to know and respond to our listeners, our customers, if you will. And now I know Tesco does five to 10,000. I suddenly feel <laughs> uh, my, a lot more inadequate. We've done 0.2,000. So, but thank you everyone who filled it in, who went to that survey dot i like it dot a problem squared dot com one of my all-time favorite urls and the first question out of the gate was um what people's favorite problem that we solved in the first year because it's difficult for us because we solve the problems yeah we put them out in the world we check with the people uh, who, who pose the problem to make sure they're happy but we never find out from everyone else what's useful what's not so we asked for your favorite and your second favorite and beck i've just sent you the pie charts of yes. the top responses. The first pie chart is people's favorite problem. And then the other one is I've combined their first and second favorites. I've yeah. also only put in problems that got three or more votes across both um, questions, first or second. So any sense. problems that got uh, two or fewer, you'll see they're in the other category, which is only 4%. So people were pretty in sync when they were listing the other ones. And there's a total of 23 different named problems from across the first year of a problem squared. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, it's really good. These are great pie charts, by the way. They're very pretty. Thank you. <laughs> I'm also enjoying just the words you've used to make it more succinct what the problems are. Like big nut, which I very much enjoy. Yep. Um, big nut. I mean, there's no ambiguity with big no, nut. We all know what that means. Not in this context. <laughs> yep. It is interesting, though, because when we're looking at everyone's like main first 
favorite problem of all of the episodes. The one that is quite clearly the favorite takes up a lot of area on our pie. It takes up up a lot of area. It does. It takes up uh, nearly a quarter of our pie. In fact, it's 24%. And that, of course, was your topography one, which was about land area with different heights of stuff. Yeah, if if the topography of a country changes its land area. I wonder if that got an unfair boost from being particularly memorable because I had to come back and apologize so many times for not putting the video out. (laughs) So I suspect because it got mentioned in so many episodes, that's given it a bit of an advantage. Everyone just remembers it now. (laughs) It's partly what was your favorite and it's partly what do you remember from um, (laughs) all the other ones. But other big, I mean, too much pizza, That that's strong. That was a very early one. That was strong. And Ferrero Rocher Pyramid as well. Ferrero Rocher, yep. I'm quite happy because also uh, burger sizes, um, it's not a main one, but it still came in pretty, pretty chunky. I'm very much enjoying the amount of people enjoying food-related yes. problems <laughs> because this bodes well for next year. Oh, yeah. The, the one that the most people commented on this is like just my own impression from going through the data was brushing teeth. So that's a good 5% of people's first and it bumps up to 6% if you include seconds. But people saying that actually like changed the way they brush their teeth. Yes, me too. So I don't know if we changed how people eat pizza, but we've changed how people brush their teeth afterwards. That's a, and I'll pass that back to Dr. Sophie as well, who gave us the uh, the little answer on that because that's that's incredible. The one that surprised me the most that I'd forgotten completely, pretty much, but featured very heavily. And I, I'd be interested to hear your surprise entry. But the plane stack. Yes. When someone asked, how many planes can you fit in the volume of space that legally you're only allowed to have one plane in? But how many could you fit? And the answer was all of them. Um, that's crazy. That's like 7% of people's favorite ones. But I, I had totally, that had disappeared. I really didn't didn't stick out in my mind, but it turns out that people loved it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that is very interesting. Uh, do we have any uh, any other stuff that we learnt from this survey? We had some boring functional questions like, "What are you doing when you listen to the podcast?" Uh, you know, what, what are they doing? I see you on. Are they bathing? That, actually, that's. A, I listen in the shower. You know, I didn't go through and collect that data. So I'm just flicking through. People are doing chores. They're playing video games doing homework a lot of people are moving we've got running or driving driving running running down near a lake it's weird what people like someone's like eating lunch or laying in bed they're the two times they listen to our podcast do both do both and report back so there you go so people do a whole range of things and we ask them what country they're in overwhelmingly they're in the uk Mm-hmm. So 26.9% people in the UK. America is very close, 21%. Oh. The reason I bring that up Howdy. is... Howdy. There you are. Yeah. You're uh, embracing embracing our audience. And then uh, we, there's a bunch of countries with only a single person. Portugal, one in Spain, five in Sweden. So, you know, uh, this is out of 200, of course. But what I found was interesting was you got a decision when you make a survey. How constrained do you make people's answers? So if I'd had like a drop down menu, it would have made data collection way more easily. But we didn't. We let everyone have complete free entry. But it means I've got to then do what's called coding the data, where I have to go through and manually assign each entry to an actual value or category. Because, I mean, there's the simple stuff where not everyone wrote USA. Some people wrote United States. Some people wrote US. Some people wrote oh. United States of America. So some people put yeah. then put their, their state in brackets afterwards. Or even here, Canada, open brackets, Quebec, close brackets. So I had to go through and go, no, that one's Canada. This one's USA. Someone's done United States of America, Washington State, oh. uh, a.k.a. Casadilla. I love Washington State. <laughs> it's a good place. And so there's a coding problem. And then other people have put like the temporarily United Kingdom, that sort of thing. Ah. And so just from a data point of view, I found it interesting that you've got to decide how constrained you make people's entries versus 
what freedom you give them. Mm. But I went for more nuanced data, but it does backfire because I have to go through and manually code it. Same as when people entered, everyone had a different way of phrasing what their favorite thing was, problem, which is why I had to come up with code names for them. Can you imagine uh, the people at packaging with Tesco having to uh, <laughs> go through 5,000 or... No, that's not. That's not how it works. They have a better system Could in be. place. <laughs> I bet they don't. So... <laughs> But I did it, it's only 200 entries, so I did it manually. I went through and I coded them myself. The the one I didn't have to do that for, and this may be the most important bit of data we got, was we asked listeners, do they have a pet hamster? Oh, yeah, it's a pretty binary question. So, so put it, it was yes or no. In fact, I limited it so they couldn't choose. Oh, Drop great. down menu. Ah. Next time, drop down menus all the way. That's how you do it. I've learned the hard way here. Uh, turns out 2% of our listeners have a hamster. Of, well, 2% so, of the people who answered the, the survey. Who knows? Everyone else might have a hamster and they're just too busy playing with it to do a survey. That's a good confounding factor. Yeah. You suddenly got very interested in data science. With, um, to, to, you want to keep a pudding squared, a long-term part of this podcast. <laughs> Even though the survey says four out of 206 people have one. So there you go. So that's uh, But you're right. People who have a hamster haven't got time in their lives to... <laughs> Answer a survey because yeah. they're living it up with That's their hamster right. buddy. <laughs> Going on bike rides and whatnot. <laughs> Excellent. So there you are. So anyway, uh, thank you very much, listeners, for filling in the survey. Yeah. I've got to say, I'm really relieved because we knew that we wanted to do this podcast together because we're friends and it would give us an excuse to hang out and yep, yep. Um, for me to learn new things. It would be fun for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, then I was a bit worried because you have some incredible audiences and I realize that I have brought some audiences to this podcast as well, but yeah, you have yeah. a larger reach currently and I genuinely thought that people would turn around and be like love everything that matt does get a new co-host like genuinely <laughs> was waiting for like, i was so nervous about the answers and what really struck me having a look and i i haven't pie charted it but what really touched me was the amount of people who commented on how much they enjoy there was the use of the word banter quite a lot which i found amusing because i feel like you and i generally if you said Oh, good bants, banter. You Good bants. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's how we would self-describe our relationship. But yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate it. It meant a lot to me and I feel very accepted by your followers. And I'm looking forward to us uh, continuing with this bants. Bants. Oh, that's not, that is not going to be our takeaway. <laughs> and I'd like to thank that not many of your supporters wrote that I go into too much detail just the correct number of people <laughs> well actually i tell you what one of the the main feedback we got wasn't it was that they like the amount of detail you go into stuff and then they also like the fact that i get bored and say okay stop now <laughs> it's it's a, it's an important part of our symbiotic relationship <laughs> yeah <laughs> it gives it gives me permission to nerd out because i know you're there on behalf of the audience to keep things remotely interesting it's a big feature for me. Well, I appreciate that. I you enjoy may, learning. You make me come across a lot more interesting. Yeah. I enjoy learning with our audience as well as from our audience. Oh, there you go. So anyway, uh, we love you all. And the most common request was more than once a month. But um, I don't know if we're able to fit that into our lives at the moment. But we will uh, uh, keep on making them for as long as we can. Yeah. It's not a no. We enjoy the, doing this. We don't plan on finishing anytime soon. Obviously, though, if you would like to help us out and not everyone can become a Patreon and that's totally fine, the best thing you can do after that is just tell other people. Spread the word. Um, give us a five-star review on whatever reviewing thing you're listening to this on. And, yeah, tweet about it. Tell others. Follow us on social media at A Problem Squared. The more we hear from you guys, the more of a reason we have to keep going. Yeah, just thank you all for being a wonderful audience and submitting great problems and helping us solve them and just being there. You're all wonderful. We wanted to finish the year off by trying to squeeze in as many problems that we could solve as possible. So we've got our long-suffering producer, John Harvey. Hello, John. Hello, Problem Squared listeners. Wow. Yeah, we're letting you talk for once. First time we let him on the podcast. Yeah. Probably the last. <laughs> 
Um, John, you've got a bunch of problems for us that you're going to shoot at us. We've got um, at maximum two minutes to try and solve uh, each one. And then you're going to stop us when we run out of time. So um, are, are, are you ready? I think I'm ready, yes. <laughs> uh, the first quickfire question is from Adam Batten on email. And he asks, what exactly defines the difference between a biscuit and a cookie? Yeah, I can solve this. Um, they're the same thing. Next. <laughs> what? No. No, they're the same thing. One, same thing? One, they largely call it in the States, and the other one, we largely call it over here in Australia. But in, in the US, a biscuit's like a savoury thing that you get with a meal. Oh, well, if they're talking about that, then that's the difference. The difference is, if they're asking what's the difference between a biscuit in terms of, like, a dinner roll and and a cookie, then clearly the difference is one is a savoury thing. But I believe they're asking what the difference is between a biscuit and the cookie in terms of what's the difference between the two things that are exactly the same. And ah. I'll tell you what it is, Adam. Nothing. There is nothing. What? There is no difference other than the what? fact that different people have different names for them. What if you went to Subway? Matt, other, we are other, on a time limit. Other f- no, yeah, but we gotta we got to answer it comprehensively. No, we don't. It's a quick fire question. But, well, you wouldn't call that a biscuit from Subway, would you? That's definitely a cookie. It's a cookie. Well, it's named... Okay, so those are called cookies because Subway is an American company. So yeah. therefore, when they were doing marketing, they're not going to change the words. I don't know. Of, I still like, wouldn't that's call why that we call them Subway. Sa- that's why they're Subway sandwiches, not just sandwiches that's why we don't call them baguettes like we call them subway sandwiches because the brand is subway sandwich they call them cookies so we call them cookies but if they were a british company and they were like oh you can come with a chocolate chip biscuit or whatever people would be like oh i guess they're called biscuits i've look you know i know about my food i get very you do, you do. very passionate about it i forget what you're trying to say and i'm prepared no to uh, uh bow to you as the food expert <laughs> well i mean i haven't heard a ding so i don't even know if that's uh john i'm not giving you a ding yet what <laughs> that's why we let john on the podcast i can't believe this yeah i know that this is the quick fire round and it's it's quickly <laughs> falling apart I just simply think the question surely is, would the cookie monster eat a digestive biscuit? Yes. I think the cookie monster would not turn down a digestive biscuit. So um, on that logic, I'm going to have to agree with Beck. I think your listeners might disagree, but time will tell. Ha! For me, I'll give you a ding because this is the quickfire round and it's not for me to argue. <laughs> the next quickfire question comes from at Y4X1T via Twitter. And they say the fact in inverted commas, that 63 Earths can fit inside Uranus, or Uranus, if you're that way inclined, doesn't make clear whether this is a simple volume comparison or whether it's considering sphere packing. Matt's favourite subject. Can you shed any light? Yep, I'm glad this is quickfire. I feel like we've done enough sphere packing over the year. In fact, one person in the survey said no more scale-based problems. So I can see where... (laughs) See where they're see where they're coming from. But then loads of other um, people said it's their favourite thing. They did. They said, you know, it, they get the square in terms of enjoyment of the number of scale based um, questions we do. And so I'd actually previously looked into this because my wife is a solar physicist, the wonder, wonderful Professor Lucy Green, and it's a famous fact that a million Earths fit inside the sun, and we were like, I wonder if that includes the packing or if it's just like the volumes. Like if you got the Earth and liquefied them and, and put them in. And the thing is for the sun, it doesn't make a big difference. If you pack them in with gaps, it's 0.96 million. If you don't, you get 1.3 million. It's a million either way, really. Whereas putting Earths up or in Uranus, then that does make a difference. So I got the, um, I got this. I can see you giggling on the video call back and I'm trying to read a spreadsheet here. So I compared, I I know, I know, but I tried to move through this. We're going to get up this, no, through this. So if you look at the radius of the earth, which is 6,371 kilometers compared to the radius of Uranus, which is 25,362. <laughs> now I see why Lucy says Uranus. The, the, um, Uranus is four times bigger than the Earth. 3.98, exactly. <laughs> You're doing a good job to stay composed there. Thank you. And this is another scale thing, right? Because that's just the linear size. Volume is the third power of that. So you'd expect it to be about 64. I ran the volumes. 
if you smushed 63 Earths together, it would be about right. It'd be a little bit bigger than than Uranus, but only slightly. If you factor in the packing them with gaps between them, you only get 46 Earths into Uranus. So there you are. Ah. I can solve your problem. That fact <laughs> assumes that the Earths are no longer spheres. They've just been mushed up. If you keep them as spheres, you're only going to get 46 in tops. <laughs> and that's how you pack Earth in Uranus. Thank you. Okay, I'll give you a ding for that. Next question is from Luke Rebelout or Rebiu via email, who says, I've never found a four-leaf clover, complete with emoji. Can you tell me why it is so and how to tip things in my favour? Uh, yep, um, I, I can solve this one. Uh, you're unlucky. That's why? That's why you haven't found a four-leaf clover? Whoa, 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 hang on. Finding a four-leaf clover is good luck. Yeah. So if you don't find one... You got bad luck? You've changed the causal link here. Because traditionally, you find the four-leaf clover, and that makes you lucky. Oh, it makes you lucky. Well, you're saying that correlation is not causal. So the other explanation is, if you are already lucky, yeah. assuming luck is some, you know, independently measurable property of a human. Yeah. If you're already lucky, therefore, you find more four-leaf clovers. And in yeah. fact, they're not bestowing any luck upon you. Yeah, because they're, they're meant to be more rare than finding an, a normal clover. Yeah. So surely that means if you happen to find more of them, that's quite lucky. Unless you are tipping the oh. scale, in which case you're probably like doing some sort of large scale clover growing facility or genetically modified <laughs> clover thing there's things you could do if it's a mutation you could just look in places with higher background levels of radiation like you know cornwall yeah chernobyl yeah chernobyl that kind of thing i love what you're doing because normally people say (laughs) that you find them and that gives you luck but you're saying no you've just you're not lucky enough to you don't deserve a four-leaf clover i didn't say it had anything to do with deserving i just said it means you're not lucky I didn't say you brought it upon yourself. That's the point of luck. If you could bring it, if you could control it through your actions, then that's not luck. That's actually like something that you've done. The whole point of luck is that it doesn't have anything to do with deserving or anything. That's about, that's where privilege comes from, Matt. Check your privilege. I agree luck exists. I don't agree lucky people exist. So um, I think you're right. It is privilege or um, other other circumstances. Uh, John could ding us uh, at any point and this would end. If anyone listening uh, considers themselves to be a lucky person and wants to prove Matt wrong, uh, hit us up at a problem squared via social media. I'll be on your side. I probably won't even notice it though. And that's your own bad luck. Yeah. Perhaps the luckiest thing I can do is say ding. Thank you. <laughs> Very stingy with the dings. <laughs> okay. This next problem is from Rob Antonishan or Antonishan, who says, is the show title A, open brackets, problem, close brackets, open brackets, problem, close brackets, or open brackets, a problem, close brackets, open brackets, a problem, close brackets? (laughs) I mean, that's great, great problem, Rob. I mean, am I right to say that, uh, correct, the title is a problem? (laughs) (laughs) The title is a problem, just full stop. Um, But that was great, and I'm glad John read that out, and the punctuation. Excellent work. So well, this, this is asking, were you to parse our title as a mathematical statement, what is squared? Is it a and then problem squared or is it a problem all squared? And I think actually that answers the, the, the question. And I, I'm always fascinated by how people who use maths in their day-to-day life read out equations to convey where everything is in the equation by how they say it. And so there's a subtle difference between a problem squared and a problem all squared. Because I think that's what that's what a math person would say if it was open brackets, a problem, close brackets, open brackets, a problem, close brackets. So oh, I would say right. in this, it's like those forwards on Facebook where it's what's six divided by two open brackets, one plus three and all this stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, it's ambiguous. And, and the mathematical answer is write it better so it's not ambiguous. And in this case, a problem squared, I would parse as a problem problem. Thank you. I didn't even know that. There you go. Ding. Ding. Thank you. Yay. Oh, it, it should be ding, ding. Yeah. Ding, ding. Thank you. There's one more. 
This problem comes from David May at David M underscore May, who says, if you had a donut shaped planet, I assume that if you went to the center hole, you would experience gravity pulling you to the planet. So what would happen if you went to the center of the Earth? More gravity being pulled to the surface or no gravity? Oh, I mean, if you're in the exact middle, middle of a toroidal planet, a donut planet, mm. the gravity would cancel out because you've got the same amount of mass in every direction if you're right in the middle of the hole. But the same thing happens <laughs> if you're inside the Earth. Oh, cut, honestly. Well, because gravity definitely works with my hole. <laughs> if you were in the center of Uranus, you'd be equally pulled in every direction. So, uh, but what's even more interesting is... Because if you're in the very middle of the Earth, it makes sense because you've got equal Earth in every direction and there'd be no gravity. I mean, there's other issues in terms of like, you know, magma and pressures and temperatures. But if you're inside a shell, if you're inside like a, a, a solid sphere. Like even a macadamia if, now. Like, yeah. It, even if you're not right in the middle, even if you're closer to one side than the other, all the gravity still cancels out. If you're anywhere inside, a, you know, a lead spherical balloon or anything like that you wouldn't feel any net gravitational pull in any direction because if you're inside a shell all gravity because the the amount of mass and the distances all perfectly cancel out it's lovely so if you're inside a planet you're only pulled down by the planet which is closer to the center than you ding yeah i wasn't sure if i was gonna get the ding on that one right as far as i'm concerned it's a ding because ah. it needs dinging love it <laughs> Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's lovely to have you speak before the end. Same time next year, I guess. See you then, Beck. <laughs> yep. John, where can, our, where can the lovely Problem Squared listeners follow you on social media? Uh, oh, that's very kind of you. Um, I uh, reside uh, on Twitter at John D. Harvey. That's J-O-N-D Harvey. Um, or if you're interested in my intergalactic alias, uh, I am also uh, the politician from outer space, Count Binface at Count Binface on Twitter and all your other social media platforms. The once Lord Buckethead, now um, Count Binface, for people who have uh, followed yeah. your intergalactic political career. That is true. I had an upgrade after a battle on <laughs> the planet copyright. Yes. Long story. I feel like <laughs> I feel like some people, some of our listeners, like there's going to be a little, just a, a little group of our listeners who we've basically just done a massive... What? Like we just dropped a bomb <laughs> yeah. and then we're just like, okay, I'm moving on. Like as if nothing. Yeah. But uh, that's going to be a funny Easter egg for some people. Maybe yeah. next next uh, episode, I will ask you to solve my problem, <laughs> which is what do you do when you were Lord Buckethead? <laughs> and uh, Yes. Yeah, we should do that. I love the fact there's now a tiny percentage of listeners who have now decided, or in their view, our producer John is more famous than either one of us. And they're now a little outraged yeah. that, that we keep John behind the scenes, only allowed to speak yeah, once a year as a Christmas treat. <laughs> I'm glad you think it's a treat. <laughs> well, we're almost wrapped up for this episode and 2020. So I uh, want to thank everyone for joining us on this wild ride. Um, just quickly, if there are any problems that we have brought up in previous episodes that we haven't answered that are driving you nuts and you're worried we've forgotten about them, please do let us know. We are on social media. We're at a problem squared on Twitter and on Instagram. So uh, please do hit us up. But just uh, there's a few others. Oh, I know we just finished our cheese cover up yep. problem in this episode. Um, Matt, do we have an update on your Christmas card problem for me? Yes. So Beck gave me a wide range of puns that I could use for my Christmas card going out to my math supporters. And I settled on the Yule Log Spiral because Yule Log, delicious Christmas edible treat and Log Spiral is a real thing. So Beck, I've just sent you the, uh, the final design that I ended up using for this Ooh, card. Let's have a look. Ah, that's great. Yeah, you've got a sort of Fibonacci sequence going on there. Sort of, yeah. So I sent this to my designer, Adam Robinson, who um, put this together for me. And it's like, it's a Fibonacci spiral. It's a log spiral. So uh, so the Yule log is like a spiral baked cake-like product with a yeah. spiral of icing on the inside. And so Adam photoshopped one with a cross section is a log spiral, which is a specific maths type of spiral. And so, and that just says Yule log spiral. Uh, right. The inside says 
something like um, May Your Joy Spiral Forever Out, which is, oh, you know, classic, lovely. classic log spiral. Yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, that is definitely a problem squared. Well, I'm glad I was able to help you with that. And for any of our uh, a problem squared Patreons, um, you will either be receiving or have received a, uh, a problem squared Christmas card that I designed an email yep. or potentially even via post if you're one of our wizard level uh, Patreons. Um, but Matt, with that in mind, um, you've got a package that I sent to you. I Could do. You open yes. that up. So I've got it here. It has remained. You've put fragile tape on it. I don't know if that was an exaggeration of what's in here or if it genuinely is fragile. Oh, ASMR. Oh my goodness. This is the original artwork. Yes. And have you made the frame out of Ferrero Rocher wrappers? <laughs> that is all the wrappers from the Ferrero Rocher that you afforded uh, me. Oh, that's incredible. I've gilded your oh. frame. So, first of all, thank you for the onerous task of eating all those Ferrero Rochers oh, that welcome. I sent over yeah. to you. I put I put a whole bunch of them in the post for Beck unannounced. And uh, very kindly, you've sent back. Oh, that's very nice. So uh, I will find a, a place to put this. And I, uh, you know, what? I'll put it somewhere so it appears in the background of a video at some point. And I'll take a photo so we can put, you know, Beck will put it out on all our various social medias so people can check it out. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Oh, yeah, I will put I will pop uh, the photo of that um, onto social medias. And while we're at it, anything else we've mentioned in this episode, you can also find on social media. So I will pop up the pie charts from the listener survey, anything like that. I'll be putting up on Instagram at a problem squared or Twitter at a problem squared. Oh, that's so sweet. And all I got you was literally more Ferrero Rochers than any one person should have. Yeah, I mean... To be fair, I still owe you a lot more. <laughs> oh, and the word was haptic. Oh, uh, haptic. Haptic. I feel you. Hey. I did reply to everyone who said haptic with I feel you. Nice. But, um, and people hitting me with feedback. I thought it was very funny. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Happy New Year! Happy New Year! 